The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I might swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the, mas- to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. 
You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Naor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head, and I worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may return to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Ber al Roy, and was de- and was dwelling in the Negev, and Isaac went out to medi- to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming, and Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted the- from the camel, and said to the servant, "Who is that man walking in the field to meet us?" The servant said, "It is my master." So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. (laughs) Good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. Um, I'm pastor around these parts. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, I've got a few announcements real quick, important things. Number one, um, God, and I feel like I'm in the dark, Tyler. Uh, Number one, God has continued to bless Sacred City, and it's become important for us uh, to centralize a little bit and get some office space. If you're on the city, I'm sure you've seen that. So one of the things that we're doing is, is God's kind of opened up a door for us at the center Um, If you know anything about Sacred City, we are a missional church. That means the majority of our church is uh, structured around missional communities, smaller communities, smaller little churches that meet in homes that are on mission towards specific people and places. We want to see God. Uh, We really want to see, we want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew the city. That's what we want to do around here. And uh, it looks like one of the ways that God's going to help us do that is we're going to partner with um, the center. It's off of Brady, if you don't, if you know where that is. And it really is the center for Christian social action in the Quad Cities. And it looks like we're going to be renting office space there. We're going to have access to classroom space, conference room space, so we can do um, some more classes. We don't just have to rent out all the bars and the coffee shops in town uh, when we want to gather other than on Sunday morning. So one of the things that we're going to do 
Uh, you can get on the city and you can see some pictures of that space. We've got a little bit of remodeling to do. Uh, we've got to get all of our office furniture and supplies and printer and all that stuff. So one of the things we're going to do is next week for the first time in our church history, next week we're actually going to have an offering. Um, we always, uh, the majority of our people give online or they, they give in the back. There's a little box back there. But we're actually going to pass some kind of something. I don't know what it is yet, a bag or a plate or something around next week. And we're going to take an offering, a special offering up to purchase this office space and to purchase the equipment that goes with the office space. So I'm asking you to, to prayerfully um, sacrificially give next week. This is above and beyond your tithes. Um, this is something that, that, that maybe you have to sell something this week. Maybe you have to, you know, dip into savings, whatever. But I, we're asking that you give sacrificially next week so we can, we can make this happen. And we can see the mission of God move forward. Um, secondly, uh, next Tuesday night, it's on the city. I'm just going to make you aware of it. Next Tuesday night, we're, gonna, we're having a church-wide corporate uh, prayer gathering. We're meeting at the center in our space. Um, so please meet us there. Sam, what time is it? Seven o'clock. Meet us there. Seven o'clock Tuesday night, um, and we're going to pray together. So this is uh, any movement of God, any great move of God, any revival, any act of renewal throughout the history has happened um, in response and happened at, simultaneously with um, the coming together, the gathering of God's people to pray specifically for Him to move. So uh, we're asking you to put that in your schedule and and get that plan out. And then last but not least, not this Friday, but next Friday, we are having a ten embrace service a service of shadows for Good Friday. It will be right here. Um, it will be 6 o'clock. Sam, 10 Embrace, 6 o'clock. 7 o'clock. Okay, my bad. 7 o'clock. I'm not in the know on these things. Uh, 7 o'clock right here, service of shadows. It's like a funeral, okay? It's celebrating Good Friday. It's really dark. It's uh, noted by the extinguishing of candles. It's a really moving and powerful service. One of my favorite favorite services of the year um, it's really a night of mourning. We walk out in mourning, dress like it's a funeral. Um, that's what's going on. So you can find out more about that on the city as well. And if you need to join the city, you can do that at the box office. Okay? So there's the announcements. I'm going to go ahead and pray this morning. Gracious God, it's an honor to gather together as your people and hear your word. We thank you for being a God who speaks, a God who reveals himself. You're just not up in the heavens somewhere hoping people find you, but you've came down and you've revealed yourself and you've given us your word. And I pray today that you would anoint my mind to think clearly and to speak your words, that you would um, anoint our ears to hear clearly, that you would do things that only you can do, and that's pierce the heart, cut through all of the walls and the obstacles that we try to place in your way. And Father, you would glorify yourself by drawing people to yourself today. I pray that this church would get a glimpse of the reality of who you are, that you would do that this morning. It, don't, it can only happen through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we entrust ourselves to you this morning. So come Holy Spirit. Father, let us see you. Jesus, thank you for coming down and showing us what the Father is like. And we pray all these things in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let, let me start, start off by stating the obvious. We just read the longest chapter in Genesis and one of the longest chapters in the entire Bible. 67 verses make up the story of Isaac meeting Rebekah. The we, reason we read that whole chapter is because we go verse by verse through the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter. Uh, that's what we're doing. It's long. The story is really long, but it's rich. As I've studied this chapter in Genesis this week, I've been moved to tears by the God of Abraham and Isaac. He's so much different from the God you might think he is. He's different from the God of your imagination. As I attempt to live on mission and share the gospel with people throughout the week, people who go to this church and, and people who don't, when they start speaking about God, so many times it's a God who barely resembles the God you're going to see today. I find that there are mainly two ways people think about God. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to refer to those two ways as God is Father and God is King. Now, there are many different reactions to these two ideas about God. Some people think He's a bad Father. Some people think He's a great Father. 
Some people think he's an impotent king. And others believe him to be all-powerful. But what I found is that most people have a really difficult time holding both of these views of God, God as Father and God as King, together in one image. So if you mainly see God as omnipotent, that means all-powerful. If you mainly see him as an omnipotent king, you see him as sovereign. He could do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but oftentimes you see him as blind and cold. This picture of God is more like some kind of determinative force who has it all worked out. People speak of God like it's fate. But that kind of God, that deistic view of God, that God kind of created the world and he kind of created it like a clock and he wound it up and then he set it on the shelf and then it's just on its own. That kind of view of God, uh, that he doesn't really concern himself with the details of your life, that kind of God doesn't really endear yourself to him, does it? That kind of, that view of God is just not very intimate. It's not very endearing. He's out there, but we're on our own here. But then there's many others who have grown up in or around the church and they speak of God like a sappy Father's Day Hallmark card. They see God as incredibly tender, which endears him to them. That's really sweet. But oftentimes this tender God is talked about like he's powerless to deal with the realities and the circumstances of our lives. He's sweet, but he leaves us to handle our stuff on our own. The glaring problem with these two views of God is that they're just not accurate. And therefore, because they're not accurate of the real God who exists, they don't bring us to worship. See, God as Father might endear yourself to Him, but I end up resenting Him because I think He's impotent. Oh, He's sweet, but He can't really do nothing to help me. And God as King might cause me to stand back and go, wow. But it doesn't move my heart to love him. But what brought me to weep and worship this week was the God of the Bible. The true and living God of Abraham and Isaac. A God who is, listen to this, both intimately tender and omnipotently sovereign. Intimately tender and omnipotently sovereign. We see this tender sovereign throughout chapter 24, but it really comes together around this Hebrew word called hased. Three times in this chapter, it's used, and all three times, it's translated by the scholars as steadfast love. We actually heard it um, several times in the reading of the psalm this morning as well. God's steadfast love. In various different translations, this word hased is translated as kindness, as faithfulness, as mercy, as goodness, as loyalty, and of course, as steadfast love. It's a word that no single English word can accurately define. It's what I like to say, it's a loyal love that God has for his covenant children. It's a fatherly king type of love. And it's a love, listen to this, that every single person who has ever been born of a woman, that's you if you didn't know, desires more than anything else in your life. You were created to desire hased, to desire God's loyal covenant love. It's one thing that unites the human race. We all intimately desire the love of a father. But as we all know, our fathers aren't perfect. Many of us grew up without fathers in the home. Maybe he dismissed his God-given responsibility and he left mom to raise the kids. And what happens? You can't help this. You can't stop this from happening. Your father's absence has created a hole in your heart, hasn't it? Maybe even a hatred for your father. I watched a great movie yesterday. It's a documentary. I'm going to recommend it to everybody. It's called Undefeated. It's on um, 
It's, it's streaming live on Netflix, and it's about this town, uh, well, it's about Memphis, the, the rough side of Memphis, who all the jobs have left, and it's just dilapidated, dilapidated, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's really the ghetto. It's just really turned into hopeless, a hopeless place to live. And this coach moves into this dilapidated area, and he starts coaching this football team. And the majority of the young men on the team Tons of athletic ability, tons of athletic talent, no fathers. No fathers, no discipline. No discipline, no character. No character, you can't build a life without character. And he, 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 he steps into this vacuum of these fatherless men, and as many coaches do, he begins to fill this role as a father. And he begins to teach these men how to be men of character, how to be men of honor. It's a, it's a phenomenal story. I recommend it. I recommend that you get it. I, I might or might not have teared up several times. My wife's looking down in the basement. What are you watching? <laughs> Salt my eye or something. Right? It's a great, it's a great story. Listen, you see in this movie this battle over these young men. You look at them, and they're strong. They're 300 pounds. They're powerful. This 300-pound guy can run, I, I don't even know what it was, like a 4840. Like, you look at this guy, and then you see him weeping over the absence of his father. You see him, in a, in a sense, controlled by this hole that he has in his heart from having an imperfect or not having a father at all. And listen, this is because that every single one of us were created. I don't care right now where you come from or what your background is or what you believe right now. Every one of us were created by God to desire the love of a father, but not just any father. See, the reason we have these holes and these gaps is because we were created to desire the love of a perfect father, and none of us had a perfect father. Let me try to tease this out a little bit here. See, many of you were raised with a dad who was super sweet, right? He was the tender dad. You were his princess, or what? I could just go into this right here, right? What, he had a pet name for you. He was really tender. He was really sweet. He never raised his voice. He was calm, cool, collected. He was just super sweet. But tender dad, let's just be honest. Tender dad was kind of a wimp, wasn't he? Let's just be honest, right? More than likely, he, ne- he very rarely crossed mom and definitely didn't cross you. More than likely, he never crossed your will and he let you get away with just about anything. He might have been the type of man who rarely stands up for what he believes in. He just kind of went with the flow. And what often happens is that sappy dad starts to look kind of pathetic to his kids when they get into the teenage years, right? The kids start to know, I can get away with anything. If I'm late for curfew, I just got to feed him a little story and dad's not going to do anything. You start praying that dad's the one waiting up for you when you get home and not mom. Right? He's sweet, gentle dad. He's tender, but he has no toughness. He's, he looks powerless. And therefore, listen to this. This is what's crazy. Therefore, he kind of becomes repulsive to you. What a wimp, you think. Oftentimes, girls begin to choose men then who are complete opposite of that. That's tenderness without power. But many of us also grew up with the flip side of that coin, which might be more common. We grew up with a father who was tough, but not tender. This type of father has power, but power without tenderness is tyrannical. It's cold, and it creates distance between the one with the power and the one without. He yells, he directs, he's in control, but the family goes when he walks out of the room. See, because we've all lived our lives with some sort of imperfect father, our father's imperfections create holes in our souls that we try to fill in various ways. These holes often affect our view of God And the only way, listen to this, the only way for our view of God to change 
Hear me. The only way for your view of God to change is for us to bring that view of God to the scriptures and see how they line up. Can we come to the scriptures and let the scriptures dictate for us what our view of God is? And there's many of you that have sat in the church for a long time and you, I've read systematic theology. I've got a good view of God. How are you living then? What is the fruit of your life? See, it's with this in mind, I think, that God gives us his gospel message. And this narrative from Genesis 24, it tells us the good news that God is both powerful, all powerful and intimately tender to his covenant children. He is not one, of, he is not one or the other. He doesn't lean one way or the other. He's simultaneously tough and tender, powerful and present. His hased, his loyal love, isn't sappy and powerless, nor is his sovereignty and his providence cold and mechanical. He's a tender father and a sovereign king. And we're going to see that right away in our passage. So open up your Bible or your app to chapter 24, verse 1, shows us an aging Abraham. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord, look at this, the Lord had blessed him in all things. See, God has been watching over Abraham and blessing him. I want you guys, over, over 13 times, the main actor in this text is God, even though he doesn't speak. Over 63, 63 verses, God is referred to 13 times. He's the main actor in this text. And I hope today that you walk away with a good vision of the reality of who he is. Right away, Abraham is old, he's well advanced in years, and God has been blessing him. He's been tender to Abraham for over 100 years. And Abraham... He knows he's getting up there in age. His wife, Sarah, has already died at the ripe old age of 127. And he knows this, that his time is coming soon, right? So he sets out to get his son, Isaac, hitched, right? Dad's, I mean, we got to see the blessing go out. I want to see Isaac get married. Isaac's like 40 years old here and not married, all right? We learn in the last verse of this chapter that he's been mourning. Right now, Isaac is in mourning, mourning the loss of his mom. <laughs> Isaac is lonely, man, and he needs to go on a date, you know? He's 40, still living with the parents. Mama dies. Nobody cooks mac and cheese like mama. I miss mama, right? He starts to get on old father Abraham's nerves Abraham's like, all right, I got to find this 40-year-old version, a woman, <laughs> right? So Abraham's, he, he, he sets out to do that. He sets out to find, a, uh, find Isaac a wife. So he called, and this is, it gets weird here for a second. So he calls in one of his servants. Abraham calls in one of his servants. He, he was rich because God had blessed him in all things. So he had servants and he had camels. He had all kind of wealth. He calls his servant in. And he does this uh, secret high thigh handshake. Okay, put your hand on my thigh. I don't even want to talk about this. It's, it's a euphemism and I don't even want to talk about what it means, all right? But it's some kind of awkward high thigh handshake. This is just weird, okay? Men, if you try to do this, even though it's biblical, I'll punch you in the throat, okay? So it's some kind of secret handshake, some kind of secret handshake between Abraham and his servant, and he makes him swear, and he says this, go to my brother's house. Now, if you remember, his brother's house, they're pagans. They're not believers. God saved Abraham out of a pagan, out of a moon-worshiping, demon-worshiping family. But he says, I want you, servant, I want you to go to my brother's house. I want you to find a woman there, and I want you to bring her back to me. Bring her back. She says, no, that's fine. You're released from that oath, but I want you to bring her back. No, you can't go there. My son cannot marry from the Canaanites. That's going to be trouble. Go to my father's house, my of my brother's house, and bring back a woman for Isaac. And when Abraham is commanding him to do this, he recounts several of God's promises to this servant. Look at verse 7. 
Abraham says this, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son there. Listen, what's Abraham doing? He's recounting to his servant the loyal love of God, the hased of God. He's saying, God has been faithful to me. He's shown his power and his sovereignty to me. And that has said that loyal love has filled Abraham and his servants with faith. So what happens? This is what happens. The servant does the secret handshake swears to do Abraham what he, what he promised he's going to do, and the servant takes off. Now, I, I just love this, okay? The servant takes off. He knows he's on an important mission, but what does he do? What's one of the first things that he does? Look at verse 12. And he said, Oh, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I want you to see what's going on here. He, this is the first prayer in the Bible that asks for specific guidance from God. Grant God, please grant me success. And he says this, according to your steadfast love. He appeals to God's loyal love. He asks the tender father and sovereign king to grant him success and to show the loyal love to Abraham. Again, here we see the Hebrew word hased. This word is used over 245 times in the Old Testament. It's used over 127 times in the Psalms. It's a word that is used for worship. It's a way to combine God's infinite power and his, and his perfection with his tenderness and his loyalty to his covenant children. And when this servant begins praying, he's praying with that in mind. He's not praying just to an omnipotent force. He's not praying, may the force be with me. He's not praying, oh, I hope that it's in the stars and it's lined up and my fate will look, I hope these things are. He's praying to an intimate father. But he's praying to an intimate father that he knows controls all things. What does it mean that God's sovereign what does it mean that God orders things through his providence? Listen to this quote I, I read this week by Charles Spurgeon. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid across the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. What does it mean that God's sovereign? It means that every single thing that happens, that is sustained, is happening under his watch care, provision, power, authority. And I want to say that is a way to think about Hased. He's infinitely powerful. He's divinely sovereign, but he's intimate. He's near. He's a father king. The servant uses this same word, said again in verse 14, after he comes up with this faith-filled plan. So this is what the servant does. High thigh handshake, sends him out. He goes, okay, this is what I need to happen. God, please grant me success in this. This is how I know that you grant me success. This is how I will measure success. This is what it's going to look like right now. He says, Lord, God of Abraham, your boy, Abe, has sent me to find Isaac a, a wife. Okay? I'm sure you're aware of that since you happen to be all-knowing. But anyways, I need to find this girl, and I would really like your help. I would really like for you to grant me success. How about we do this? I'm going to sit at this well. And I'm going to wait for all the young women to come draw water. 
Okay. And how about this? When they come down, I'm going to ask them, will you give me a drink? And then the young woman that you have chosen to be the wife of Isaac, I want you to have her respond to me and say, oh, I'll give you a drink. Would you like me to water your camels also? How about that, God? That's the plan that I want to go with. And if you do this, then I will know that you have shown steadfast love. You have shown loyal love, that you are an intimate father and a divinely sovereign God. I'll know that. And amazingly, this is just great. It says, before he had finished his prayer, Rebecca comes down to the well. Oh man, this does me, this does me good. This moves my heart right here. Before he had finished his prayer, Rebecca, so he's praying, God, please send me this woman, do this thing. And he opens his eyes and here comes this woman walking down with a jar on her shoulder. And this just shows us, man, it shows us God's graciousness and his tender care. But it also shows his sovereignty, his providence, that nothing happens without his approval. That he's intricately involved in every detail of our lives. Before he had finished praying, the woman was already on her way. Please hear that. Please just let that get in there and do something. That should rattle around, hook onto something and mess you up. While he's praying, the answer... While he's praying, the answer is on the way. God, he's sovereign. It's so good. God had begun answering this prayer before it was even prayed, before it was even finished. And he didn't just answer his prayer. (laughs) He was incredibly kind to Isaac. Look at verse 16. I love this. The young woman was, so she does it, right? She gets down there. Rebecca gets down there. She does exactly what, what he asked that, that God would have her do. She says, all right, I'll, I'll water your camels also. Okay. And look what it says about her. Verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Look at this. She was hot. She was a hot maiden. She was a hot virgin. Now, I'm absolutely serious about this. God could have sovereignly sent any ugly duckling his way. Okay? She could have waddled down to the water and he just whatever she is, right? He's going to take her. This is it. But what does God do? He didn't. He sent a beautiful young woman. He's powerful and tender. Do you see this? This just moves my heart. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. But what does he do? He's so tenderly connected to his covenant. He's so tenderly connected to his people that he blesses them. He's already blessed Abraham over and above. Now he's blessing this servant and he's prospering his way. Now he's blessing Isaac. He's just being good to him. He's just being tender to him. Is that how you view God? As powerful and tender? Or do you view him as this wimp? Or do you view him as mean and doesn't really care about what you what you what would make you happy? And I use that in a, in a very specific way because only God can make us happy ultimately. Rebecca then responds just the way that the servant had asked God for her to respond. And what does the, what does the servant do? Can I ask you, what would you do? What do you do when you get a firsthand glimpse into the plan of the father King? What do you do when you stand back and go, wow, He's been that good to me. He's been in control of all of the detours that I've taken in my life. And he's gotten me in this moment and he's been near to me and intimate with me. What do you do? What do you do do when you get a view of the absolute power of God coupled with his fatherly care? Look at verse 26. This is what you do. This is the only thing you do. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love. There's the Hesed again. His faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinmen. 
He bows his head and he worships the Lord. He responds the only way to respond to a true, intimate king. He responds in worship. See, listen, God's sovereignty alone doesn't bring your heart to worship. God's sovereignty alone doesn't melt your heart. Nor does his tenderness alone. Those of you who think you serve some kind of cuddly, dudley Jesus, you think of Jesus as your boyfriend or something, that doesn't bring you to worship him. But when we see God rightly as he truly is, our hearts are melted. The hardest hearts get melted by God's loyal and steadfast love. The the hardest hearts get melted by God's loyal love. And then listen, and when our hearts get melted, then we respond and that, that loyal love, that covenant love, then empowers us and motivates us for faith-filled, tender trust and obedience. See, God lets this servant, this unnamed servant, I love it. We don't even get his, just the man, the man, the man, the servant. God lets this unnamed man, this insignificant man, God lets this servant see his hased. He lets him get a glimpse of his loyal love. His tender, loyal, and all-powerful love. And that love motivates him for mission. Look at verse 34 and 36. So he said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He's become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old and to me everything he has. So this, this, right now, this is what happens right here. The servant sees God's loyal love. He sees his divine power, his sovereignty. He sees his intimate connection, his intimate love, his, his, his said. And he says, okay, now I've got, some, I've got a really tough plan ahead of me. This servant has now got to go to Rebecca's dad and convince Rebecca's dad, right? He's got to ask permission to take his daughter away to another land to marry this guy named Isaac, sight unseen. Now that's a tough sell. Dads, is that a tough sell? Guy shows up, you um, the guy, the, the quarter, the husband, the guy who wants, doesn't even come. He sends a servant. Oh yeah, this Isaac, my master, he, he, he wants your daughter. We got to go, actually, right now. Can we do this? Listen, but the servant has seen God's said. I think that's very important. The ser- how, how could the servant be motivated to go do that? Right? We know the classic example of dad, right? Waiting with the shotgun. Right? Garden, garden his woman. Garden his, 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 his daughter. Right? What motivates this guy for obedience? What motivates this guy for faith-filled obedience? Crazy stuff. Go ask for this girl. He's seen God's said. We see this because when he first gets there, what does he say? He starts recounting to him God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham. He tells him the story. Let me see, God. Listen, I didn't just get here today. This isn't my first rodeo. This is what's happened. God chose Abraham out of your family. Remember when God chose him? God's been blessing him ever since. God promised to give his, his wife, who was barren, God promised to give her a son. It's already happened. She was 100 years old. It's been crazy, I know. All right? She just died. God's been covenantly faithful. This is what happened. I went down to the water. I said, God, I need some help. Help me make my way prosperous. Here's what we're going to do. Drink of the water. Okay. Ask me about my camels. Okay, I'll do that. This has all happened. Nahor, this has all happened. Right? He doesn't just, oh, I hope that maybe I'll share, the, I'll share this little story and then maybe, maybe just happen, the, the Spirit will give me the perfect whatever. He just tells the story of God's hased, of God's faithfulness, stands there and says, you know what? God made her ask me, God... God's done all this stuff. I've watched his providence over and over and over. I've watched him be so faithfully intimate with Father Abraham. I know that that past grace gives me confidence in his future grace. That when I get to that moment, 
God will do what God's got to do. And this is how you know it's God. This is how you know it's God. I love it. A pagan. He's doing this to a pagan. A guy who doesn't believe. All right, and look at, look at verse 50. How does the pagan respond? He gives him the whole story of God. The pagan responds like this. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing has come from the Lord. Now, I, we cannot speak to you whether it's bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of my master's son as the Lord has spoken. I love this. This is what they, listen to me. This is what our life should do. This is what our message should do. People from the outside should go, I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's bad, but it's obviously of God. He's, I don't know if this is good. I don't know if this is bad, but it's obvious God is in this. The providential hand of the almighty God is obviously leading you to this moment right now. Obviously something is going on here. I don't know if it's good or bad, but something's going on here. That floors me. That floors me. And once again, what happens? Once again, the servant responds, verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. He bowed himself before the Lord. Listen, a good look at the God of the Bible does this. A good look at the God of the Bible does this to you. It changes you. It humbles you. If you see God as father only, as a sweet guy who kind of loves everybody but has no real power or standards, you're going to feel like a kind of sentimentality towards him. But you won't have any real power. A sentimental relationship with your boyfriend Jesus won't change you. A sentimental, oh God, he's kind of cool. This little affection that won't change. It won't give you strength to overcome the addictions, the, the negative thought patterns in your life, the negative habits that you... It won't empower you for change. It won't help you have a strong marriage or, or, or raise godly children or be good in business or be, have strong character. That kind of sappy love won't empower you. But on the other hand, if you view God as only king, being around him is going to begin to feel oppressive. You're going to start feeling like nothing is ever good enough for him. If you view him only as king, you're going to start living your life constantly trying to please him. Constantly trying to make him happy, but knowing in your heart that you're never quite there. If you view God as only as king, you're going to be kind of on the treadmill and trying to make him happy and trying to do these things, but your heart is never really in it. You're not really endeared to him. That's just an exhausting place to be. So where do you land? What's your dominant view of God? Is he a sweet dad or a sovereign king? Hey, let me, let me help you diagnose yourself. Please ask yourself this question. Or think about it this way. If you're too scared to ever share your faith in public or reach out to a neighbor, more than likely you think of God as a sweetie that never asks you to do tough things. He never asks you to do things that make you uncomfortable, nor does he offer you power to do those things. But on the other hand, if you tend to share your faith often, but you do so in a real aggressive and ungracious way, you like to argue and make people feel guilty or stupid, you probably think of God as a powerful king, but not very tender. If you lack boldness, you need to see God as powerful and in control. And if you lack gentleness... You need to see and experience God as a tender father. But how do I do that? So I want you ask yourself, where do you land? Tender? Tough? And then the next question I know we ask is, but how do I do that? How do I change that? 
if I see him as this weak, soft guy, or if I see him as a tyrant and he's in control of all things, but he doesn't really care about my circumstances, he doesn't really care about my life, how do I change that? How does a person change their view of God? There's only one way to change your heart. And that is by seeing and savoring the reality of who God is. You've got to see him as he really is. Let me show you this from the text. In this text, we see God's gracious, loyal, covenant love all over the place. We see him choosing Abraham. We see him comforting Isaac. We see him leading the servant. We see him answering prayer. We see him giving Isaac a hot wife. We see him affirming Rebecca's father. We see him inspiring Rebecca to leave her homeland. God's grace is all over this passage. And here's the kicker. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Nobody was like, it's a good day, boy. Luck of the Irish, right? We don't see, man, the stars have aligned this week. Thank God the sun's shining on me. We see people saying, God has done this. All of these little providential acts, all of these acts of God's sovereignty are a result of God being intimately connected with us, intimately for us. We see his people having gospel eyes. They they all had these gospel eyes that could see God's handiwork. They knew this is God's loyal love to us. He's so strong. He's so tender. He's so good. And they bowed and they worshiped and they respond in faith-filled obedience. Their hearts were changed because of it. What happens to them? What do we see? When they see, listen to this, this is the paradigm. When you see God as he is, and you don't have this this blockage that you only see half of him, you only see a piece of him, or you only see him as soft, or you only see him as powerful. When you can really see God as he is, when they recognize his steadfast love, his loyal love, they respond in faith-filled obedience and worship. In this text, we see them praying. We see them obeying. We see them speaking God's word retelling his story. We see them worshiping. We see them falling falling on their face and bowing. We see them loving. And in verse 63, Isaac goes out to the field to meditate on God's chesed. They saw God's chesed. They saw his covenant love. They saw his strength, his power, his might, his intimacy towards them. And they responded in faith-filled obedience. I don't want you to miss this. You want to know how people who see God as he truly is, as an intimate father who is also a sovereign king, you want to know how those people respond to him? You want to know how if you can tell if you have a proper view of God, if you're seeing God as he really is? In a sense, those people crawl up into his lap. In this text, you see them praying. They pray throughout the day. People who see God as he truly is, they pray throughout the day. They go out to quiet places to meditate on God. They memorize the story of God and they memorize portions of scripture and they worship God intimately in real life. They obey him. They share their faith. They live on mission as missionaries. That's how we know if we're seeing God as he truly truly is. Because when we see him as he truly is, our heart gets melted and motivated for his mission. Now, is that how your life looks? Do you find yourself often crawling up on the father's lap? 
memorizing his word and meditating on his love. Is that how your life looks? If it doesn't, you might not be seeing God clearly. Now, those things that I just listed, they could sound legalistic to you. Like a checklist for you to earn God's love. Pray, meditate, study, memorize, worship. Do those things and God will approve of you. You could take that list and you could make it into that, but that's not what it's meant to be. See, those things, let me call them means of grace. Those are means of grace. Prayer, meditation, study, memorization, worship. Those are means of grace. Listen, they're like an oil rig. You can erect an oil rig in my backyard and that thing could do what it's meant to do and it could drill down. And what's going to come up? Nothing, mud, water, I don't even know, right? Nothing's going to come up. But if you build that rig, if you build that oil rig on top of an oil field, when you drill down, oil comes up, right? In the same way, when we practice prayer, Bible reading, study, meditation, and worship on top of our legalistic attempts to make God happy, nothing comes up. Nothing comes up. If you're, I got to please God today, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do the right thing. And you're doing that on top of this legalistic tendency of the human heart that says, I need to make God happy because he's kind of like that irritable dad who's unpleasable. I'm going to try to please him, but it's never going to be good enough. You're going to drill down. You could pray, you can meditate, you can do all these things and tap into nothing. But... If we practice those same means of grace on top of, on the foundation of God's hased, God's loyal, steadfast love towards us, that love begins to come up through the surface and it begins to change us. See, when you build it on top of, I am accepted and approved of God because of Jesus Christ that I could do nothing to, to make him happy and I could do nothing that's going to cause him to turn his back on me because Christ obeyed for me and that God is intimate father and sovereign king. When you build the rig on top of that, you drill down into that hased, and what comes up? God's steadfast love and it begins to change your view of God. And what does it do? When you change your view of God, it changes your heart. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see the world. And that is how God changes people. So listen, don't throw out the oil rig. Just because you were a part of a church or you were part of a denomination or you grew up, read, pray, Bible study, meditate, because God will love you if you do. Just because you grew up drilling down to nothing, Don't throw out the rig and say, oh, the rig is no good. There's no point. That's just a legalistic checklist. I don't want to read. I don't have to pray. I don't have to study. I don't have to meditate. I don't want to have to do those things. Don't throw out the rig. That's God's ordained means to bring up his hased. That's God's ordained means to bring up the love of God, to change our view of who he is, to change our outlook of the world. Don't throw out the oil rig. But there are probably many people in here today who say, Justin, how do I know that God even loves me? How do I know that he'll be tender towards me? Or how do I know that he's even powerful enough to change me? You don't know my past. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know my lack of father. You don't know how bad my father was. You don't know the hole in my soul. You don't know the issues of my life. You don't know the habits. You don't know all these things about me. How can God be powerful enough? How could God be tender enough to save me and to change me? Listen. You can know beyond of a shadow of a doubt. Because God, number one, in his sovereignty and in his providence, he got you here today. Okay, listen, you could be a hundred different places. You could be a hundred different places right now. I'm sure you had the offer. I'm sure you had the thought, right? You could be in a hundred different places, but you're not. Why? Because of a million different reasons, a million different reasons you got here. A million different reasons created me and pl- to plant this church, to get 
to this moment right here, bumping into somebody. What a coincidence that told you about this church, right? There's so many acts of providence that got you here in this moment. And God's in heaven managing them all. So how can you trust his power? He got you here this moment. And listen, you know he will be tender. You can trust that he will be tender towards you because of the extent that he went to forgive you. Listen to me, please. What's so shocking is that God was infinitely tough towards Jesus so that he could be infinitely tender towards you. Jesus got his backhand so you could be embraced into his lap. The Father poured his wrath out on Jesus, the wrath that's rightly due to you for your rebellion and your rejection and you want to live your life on your own. You deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the wrath of God for sin. And God poured his righteous wrath on his own son, a son who had done nothing wrong, a son who was perfect, a son who deserved nothing but the tenderness of a father. But instead, God gave him the toughness that you deserve. He gave him the wrath that you deserve. He gave him the beating that you deserve. He gave him the crucifixion that you deserve. He gave him the death that you deserve. How can you trust that God will be tender to you? Look at the extent that he went so he could be tender towards you. Killed his own son so that he could adopt you into his family. Jesus took the wrath so that we can take the blessing. It's said of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus took the wrath of God and still remains tender towards us. Only the Son of God can do that. So in this moment, I, I pray that the Spirit and the Word has been working in your heart. It's been convicting you of your sin. And I pray that you would respond by placing your faith in the God of this gospel. A God who's not a sissified pushover. A God who's not a tyrannical king. A God who's in control of all things while simultaneously being intimately tender towards his children. But listen, let me, let me hear this. When I say children, I mean his covenant children. God will not and is not tender towards all humanity. Either Christ was crushed so that he could be tender towards you, or you will be crushed. Either Christ pays for the debt and Christ pays for your sin, or you will pay for your sin and you will receive you will be crushed for eternity. So I don't want you to think that, you know, misstrew this and think that, oh, God's just sweet towards everybody. Absolutely not. He's sweet towards his children. He's tender towards his covenant people. Is that you? And if it's not, why not? He's got you here this moment. He's you're listening to this message, will you respond in faith? Father, I thank you for your spirit. I trust that you are here. I trust that you are convicting. I trust that you are filling people with faith. Father, I, I ask that before we come to the table, before we come to the Lord's Supper, that you would convict us that people who have something against their brother or their sister would not take this supper unworthily, but they would go to their brother and sister and confess their sin one to another. Father, I pray that we would 
search our heart and we would ask the Spirit to search our heart before we take of the supper this morning. Father, where we've erred, where we, we tend to see you as either powerful king or an intimate father, where we err in seeing you, I pray that you would write our focus and write our vision and let us see and savor you as you truly are. And let that sight of you, let it change our heart. And Father, those of us who we see, but we see with dim eyes, may we plant the oil rig of the means of grace on top of your has said, your steadfast love for us. And may we study and meditate and pray and read and memorize so that we can see you as you really are. Do this in us for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.